Welcome to the Alaskan Journey Podcast. My name is Jamin Gurker. I'm a realtor in South Central Alaska, and my mission is to help you to build an intentional and significant legacy for yourself and your family by coaching you in real estate. And the purpose of this podcast is to really show what the authentic Alaskan lives like, what it's uh, the experience is like living up here, and also to take a deeper deep dive on all of the um, on all the stuff that we talk about on the YouTube channel with the Alaska Realtor and be able to do that in a little bit more of an in-depth way than how we do it on the YouTube channel. And I'm very lucky today I have um, Adam Hefner with First Rate Financial who's coming over to um, answer all of our mortgage questions and kind of talk about the projections we have going forward for 2022. So um, Adam, thanks for uh, thanks for having us over here in your studio today. This place is absolutely awesome, so well, <laughs> thanks for having us over. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jamin. My pleasure. I'm really excited to be here today. Uh, I feel honored, and I've been following you on YouTube. I'm a YouTube addict, and so I love watching what you're doing there. And I think it's great that you found a, a format where you can help people learn about Alaska before they come. Um, and even the people that live in the state, you're learning something new. So I think it's awesome what you're doing. Excited to be here with you. Well, I do appreciate it. It's it's been it's been a really fun journey. I can tell you that. So let's go and just jump right into this. Then uh, what we'll be doing today is just going really basic, talking about you know, on the mortgage side of it what uh, what we can expect, and just kind of making it really simple for people who might be looking at even getting their first house. And then we'll get a lot more advanced to uh, you know a lot of the other um, aspects of the process we have moving forward. So let's just start really basics though. So why are interest rates so important for real estate? Because that seems to be the headline for just about any article on real estate these days. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the reason is, is that everything comes down to affordability, right? People, not always, but most often are making a decision to buy or to not buy a piece of property or real estate based on the affordability. And that comes down to monthly payment. Um, very few people are fortunate enough to be in a situation where they can just pay cash for something, right? And if that's you, if, if you've got enough money, you're Scrooge McDuckin' it over there, you know, um, then if you can just buy the thing, then that's fantastic, good for you. But that's not most people. And so most people look at their monthly income and their monthly bills and say, okay, with my level of income, my savings, can I balance this? Can I afford this monthly payment? And the interest is the biggest part of someone's monthly payment. So in the mortgage industry, we love our acronyms and we like this acronym called PITI. PITI is what we refer to as the monthly payment. And that's principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. So that's the full kit and caboodle of things that you're responsible for paying every single month as a homeowner. Of those four items, the principal, the interest, the taxes, and insurance, the interest is the biggest portion of everyone's monthly payment or monthly expense. So the level of interest that you get, whether it's a higher or lower, like has an immediate and dramatic effect on your bottom line and your ability to afford that home and be successful. Got it. Okay. So let's, uh, let's try just playing with a couple numbers here real quick then. Um, do you have maybe an example to, to show just how drastic having even a couple of percentage points on an interest rate is for the affordability for a house? You know, I don't have a good rule of thumb off the top of my head, um, but it can be dramatic. The, the biggest thing to take a look at is that it's a function of how much money you borrow. So if you have a small loan, if you're borrowing $100,000, um, which is still a lot of money, but in the scheme of a 30-year mortgage, $100,000 is a relatively small loan. Then the difference of a quarter or half a percent in payment 
isn't going to be that big of a deal. You get to the point where you're buying a half million dollar property and you got a half million dollar loan, then that quarter or half a percent can make a big difference, right? Right. I mean, especially if you have an investment property or, or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Investment property, again, it's affecting your, your cost. And so you want to look at your return on investment. And again, the biggest expense is that, that, that interest rate. The interest rates are affected by a number of different factors as well. So let's talk about this just real briefly. You have the market. So the, the real estate market, and we'll talk more about the market later, I'm sure, but the market goes up and down. That's one factor. And that factor is outside of our control. We also have some factors within our control that, that affect your interest rate as well. So different mortgage programs have different interest rates. You've got government loans, FHA, VA versus conventional. Um, you have a bunch of different kinds of loans, different loans, different rates. The same individual could apply for three different programs, get three different rates. You also could take another individual who applies for those three same programs, and that guy gets totally different rates. So it has to do with your credit. It has to do with your down payment. Um, it has to do with a handful of other aspects like your debt-to-income ratio, right? And so the bank is going to be measuring the risk of the transaction, and then they're going to charge accordingly. And so banks do risky transactions. They do safer transactions, and they charge according to their risk. Got it. Okay. So as like, let's just say as a new time home buyer coming in here, what do I have to do to really look like a really attractive, safe bet for a bank to loan on? Comes down to planning, planning, okay. planning, planning. I'm going to underline it, circle it, highlight it again, <laughs> planning. All right. Um, don't wait until the last minute. And so the wrong way to do this is to be browsing properties on the internet, on your cell phone, and looking at a bunch, um, and then coming to a decision and saying, this is the one that I want. And then that when you decided, hey, man, this is the one, I need it, I want it, I got to have it right now, then you call Jamin, and you're like, Jamin, I want to make an offer right now. And Jamin says, are you pre-approved? Right? Have you talked to a lender? Do you have your financing in order? Do you have your budget in order? What's your down payment? What kind of loan program are you using? And then you're in a scramble to get connected with your, your, your loan officer, your mortgage broker, who then is in a, in a situation where they don't have the time to plan with you to improve your credit, to come up with a strategy for increasing your down payment, right? And so it's that rush, rush, rush that creates problems and stress and is going to increase your, your odds of failure. And so plan accordingly. So way before you find the home that you want, if you're even thinking about this as an idea, let's start doing some financial planning. And if you buy a home, fantastic, we'll get full value. If you do the planning with your mortgage broker and you don't end up buying a property this year, totally okay. You got some free planning, you got some free strategizing, you've learned some stuff along the way, and most likely you're in a better spot financially than you were before, which puts you in an even better spot to execute on your goals later down the road, right? Specific things, we're going to look at your credit with you right? And this can be a little bit uncomfortable for people, but don't be shy, right? We do this all day long. We're <laughs> not going to find anything on your credit that we haven't seen before, right? There's nothing that's going to shock or surprise or scare us away. We're here to help. And people's credit is surprisingly elastic. So if you stretch it all the way out to the ends, if you let it go, whoom, it snaps right back to the way that it was. And so you're a lot of people feel like victims of their credit and like, oh man, this thing befell me a long time ago and it's never going to go away and I don't know how to fix it. I don't know where to start. I don't, I don't know what to do. And uh, you can't break your credit. You, you can, it's malleable, right? It'll snap back. And so what we like to do is kind of go through the credit report with people line by line and teach them. This is what it says. This is what it means. Here's where we have control, right? And you'd be surprised. I don't care where your credit score is. 
after a consultation like that, we're going to be able to get you some points. Even if you have really good credit now, let's get it to great credit. Let's get to fantastic credit, right? We can get it up a little bit. And there are, are buckets or tiers of pricing, and the, the tiers go down 20 points. So a 760 and above for most lenders is considered top-tier pricing, all right? You can go higher. You can get above 800. But for most lenders, 760 and above is all blue sky. Beneath that, you have 20 20 point buckets. So 760, 740, 720, 700, 680, et cetera, all the way down. And each of those 20 point buckets is going to come with worse pricing as you move down the list. And so you might find someone who has a 755 credit score, very good credit score by, by any measurement, 755, great score, good on you, high five, right? It's not the best. And you're only five points away from getting to that top tier of 760. And because 20 points is a relatively thin slice there, there's a lot of opportunity to gain a point or three points or five points or eight points and get yourself to the next tier and get a slightly better deal. The credit reporting system works in increments of 30 days. So it's not like you pay off your credit card and it's instantly updated. It's not instantly reported. You don't pay off the collection and, and they find out the very next day. They generally update once every 30 days. So that 30-day cycle is important to know because it could take up to 30 days to have the, the positive work you're doing today show up on your credit report. And so when you're planning for something as important as your credit score, your credit report in the lending process, you want to give yourself some, some runway, right? If you give us a month, two months, three months to plan with you in this area, you're going to see some benefit. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge too. Cause I mean, I know that that little bit of a difference on the credit score might not seem like a whole lot right now, but if you amateurize that out over the course of 30 years, it's, it's a pretty big chunk of change. Tens of thousands of dollars easily uh, over the lifetime of loan for just a small eighth of a percent increment in your interest rate. Yeah, it's it's huge. Mm -hmm. So, so how is it that I guess we have interest rates? Why why don't we just make it like 0.5 interest rates? You know, why sure. is it why is it where it's at? What's the logic sure. behind it? Uh, what it comes down to is is investing. And so, what is investing? Investing is someone taking a measured risk for a measured or expected return. Right, like uh, I'm going to I'm going to do this thing that I don't have to do. Right, this is optional. I'm going to do this thing with my money, my time. Um, sorry, um, investing. Right, so investing is a balance of investment and return on that investment. So I can invest my time and energy to go to the gym, and I earn getting healthy. I earn muscles, I earn fitness, right? That's an investment. I can track my input, I can track my output. And financial investment is a measurement or a, or a function of measuring risk and then, then profits. And so if I, if I am willing to take a higher risk on something, I expect a higher level of profit, right? If I look at a, rent, a transaction or an investment and it has lower risk, if it has lower risk, I'm willing to accept a lower level of profit. And so I want the profit of my investment to be in sync with the risk of the transaction. Risky thing, big reward. Like if you go to, uh, you go to Vegas and you're playing roulette, you bet on like one number, right? Put it all on like, you know, 13 black or, or whatever it is. Your odds of winning are low, right? Because a lot of other numbers you could hit on the roulette wheel. But if your number comes up, ding, 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 payday, you know, like you're, you're making a bunch of money. 
And whereas if you say, if you're playing roulette and you bet on just, just black as a color, your odds are 50-50. It might be red, it might be black. I'm going to win half the time, I'm going to lose half the time. If I bet on just the color, my, my winnings are way smaller right? But if I bet on a specific number in the roulette game, then if I hit it, I'm going to get a big payday, right? And so you can start to see that balance between risk and reward. So if the bank looks at you as a borrower and they say, man, this guy is stable. He's been at his job for 10 years. Um, he works a, a salaried position. So whether he works four hours today or 10 hours today, he makes the same amount of money, which means it's not going to fluctuate. It's stable. The guy's earning $150,000 a year. That's a good amount of money. He's like, he's beating the national averages. He's putting 20% down. He doesn't have to put 20% down, but he is, right? This guy's going above and beyond. I also can see that he has a proven ability to save. He had to save that 20% down payment, right? There was distractions in life, lots of other opportunities to spend that money, go buy a new Cadillac or, you know, go on vacation or X, Y, Z to spend your money on. But he wasn't, he was diligent. He stayed focused. So the fact that he's stable financially, he's got good credit, he's got this down payment, he's got a proven ability to save, he's buying a home for him and his family to live in, the guy's married with two kids, whatever, right? Like that's a solid picture of someone who's a good borrower and the bank's like, hey, I see you putting in work, I see you being diligent and responsible, I can see your, your steps in the sand, right? So you get a better deal. I'm willing to give you a lower interest rate, right? Because it's less risk. Less risk. Whereas now I got a guy who is a seasonal worker. This guy is a fisherman uh, during the summer times. Um, and, you know, in the winter, uh, he occasionally does snowboard guiding, right? And, man, he's living the dream. He's got two awesome jobs. He's outside all year long. He's having fun. The problem is that those industries are very hit or miss. So if you're a fisherman and you have a, a banger summer, man, you're going to make a bunch of money. Hoorah. But you could have another you could have another year where, man, you're really not making very much money at all. And same with, you know, with your your guiding. If you're going snowboard guiding in the wintertime, if you have a really good snow year, you got lots of clients, you're making more money. Um, if you have a crummy snow year, there's maybe not that opportunity and you're making less. You also got shoulder seasons where the guy's not working at all. He probably makes a bunch of money and then spends that money in the off season, right? Um, free time encourages people to go place. Maybe this guy's traveling abroad to go fishing or snowboarding or something like that. And so great guy, he's living an adventurous lifestyle, but maybe he doesn't have the down payment. Maybe his credit's taken some hits. His income is harder to calculate and project into the future because of those seasonal and fluctuating earning cycles, right? And so a guy like that, they're going to give him a loan, but they're going to say, hey, it's not a personal thing, but your life is less financially stable than the first scenario. So we're going to have to charge you a slightly higher interest rate. Yeah, well, that certainly does make sense uh, when, when you kind of explain it that way. Because, I mean, I know that's, uh, that definitely is um, something that a lot of people are always interested in and just going, hey, how come so-and-so got 2.7? I got 3.2 or something yeah. like that. And a lot of people, it's, it's hard to not take your own life personally. So when someone says, hey, <laughs> your rate is this, it's easy to get indignant and be like, well, that's not fair. The other guy got this deal, you know? And it's why I, I want to circle back to that planning again is because understanding how you're going to be graded is important and it's it's part and parcel to having a good experience here. So if you go to the lender and you got no idea what they're looking at, you got no idea what they're looking for, you got no idea what the test questions are, you don't know how you're going to be graded in this way, but you know it matters a lot, 
it's easy to get frustrated and want to push back and say, hey, that's not fair. That's not right. Do it again. Check your facts, right? And so what we like to do with people is have a conversation about this is what the bank's looking for. This is what makes you look bad. And this is what makes you look good. And then have some time to scrub the areas that might need some scrubbing. And it's it's planning again. So if I say, hey, this is the bullseye. This is what winning looks like. So if you're going to have these seasonal jobs, here's a way that you can paint that in a slightly better picture. Here's where you do have some control. And I think that people have a lot more control than they realize. And it's, it's, it's our job, I view it, to empower them, right? To show them where they have the power, where they have the control, and then teach them how they can kind of manipulate their own personal finances and their situation to match what the bank is looking for and win that better deal. I mean, ultimately, it's going to come back to kind of the habits and your lifestyle and your own decisions, ultimately, that's going to make make or break the decision. So, yes, yes, totally. absolutely. Yep. Totally. So the past couple of years, I mean, we've had ridiculously low interest rates. Um, can you kind of explain why why that is? Are the powers that be, they're suddenly just feeling benevolent and feeling uh, generous and giving out these great rates to everybody? Or what's what's the deal? Sure. It's a good question. And... It all goes back to around 08, 09. And during 2008, 2009, um, if you remember, that was like the great financial like collapse of the mortgage industry and um, the economy as a whole. Like that was a rough couple of years. And we, we now refer to that, that time period during 08, 09 as the great recession. Um, and what happened is before 08, 09, our whole country was drunk on real estate. Um, real estate was appreciating at double digits all across the country. Interest rates were like 8, 9, 10, 11% during this time period. Um, interest rates were very high. And generally, when, when rates are high for borrowing, rates are generally high for earning as well. So interest rates kind of go up and down, earning rates and borrowing rates. During this time period, it's expensive to borrow, but you also were making a bunch of money on your investment. What happened is, is that the banks were ultimately making some bad decisions in who they were lending money to, and the whole thing kind of fell apart, right? So 08, 09, the whole thing like collapsed. As the industry was falling apart, the government had to step in, all right? And this is really where the low rates of today come from. It was that government intervention all the way back in 2008, 2009, and what they called QE, or quantitative easing. And quantitative easing was a fancy term for, we're going to push cash into the economy. And so the Federal Reserve and the federal government started literally pushing with both hands just giant sums of liquid cash into the economy to help keep it stable, keep the banks alive, keep them lending money, and to make sure that the whole thing didn't stop spinning. And one of the things that they were doing there during that time period was they took this money that they were printing and they were buying mortgage-backed securities or mortgage bonds. And as they were buying these mortgage bonds, it was pushing the price of the asset up. Like more people buying the thing pushes that thing up. So the government came and the government starts buying these mortgage-backed securities or mortgage bonds. And when the price of the bonds goes up, the interest rates go down. Okay, the interest rates go down. This is kind of complex and maybe not super relevant, but I want to talk about it for a second just because I think it's intriguing. And again, the education of the more you know about it, it, it demystifies the process and you realize maybe you have some control. So these mortgage bonds or mortgage-backed securities is where the bank takes their bundle of loan products, right? The bank takes a raw material of cash 
they take the raw material of cash and then they improve it by vetting a borrower. They're going to look at your credit, your income, your assets, your stability of life, things like that. And they give you a loan and then that loan starts to drip off an interest rate. And so that loan is more valuable than the underlying loan amount, right? If I make a $100,000 loan, but it creates $10,000 a year in interest, well, then the value of the loan is greater than the original $100,000 that I had to begin with. Right. Right. So the mortgage company is going to do a bunch of these loans and then they take them to Wall Street. They say, hey, guys, hey, Wall Street guys, investors, you want to buy my loans? You want to buy my bonds? I got a big bundle here. Really good loans. You want to buy them? And the investors are like, yeah, sure. Like, that's our job. We measure the risk and we measure the reward. What are you offering us as far as an interest rate? And then I'm going to compare that interest rate against what else I can earn in the market. So, like, I'm, I'm happy to look what, what rate you got. What other opportunities do I have? If your bundle of loan products, your mortgage-backed securities look acceptable, heck yeah, I'd love to buy some. And so if the bank says, hey, I got all these loans and they're going to pay you 4%. It's guaranteed rate of return, 30-year fixed rate loan, 4% on your money. You want these. Wall Street guys buy all of them, like right away, day one. 4%, heck yeah, I'm in. Sell me all of them you got for 4%. Well, then the, the banker, the guy who did the loans, um, he goes back to his buddies at the bank. and He's like, yo, I just sold all of those mortgage-backed securities. I sold all the bonds. I sold them real fast. I sold them all, you know, at 4%. The guys loved them. They said they want more. And so the bankers are like, well, you know, what could we do to get more loans? Like, what, what, you know, what could we do? Someone raises their hand, smart guy is like, how about we drop the interest rates? How about we do some new loans at 3%? Let's offer 3% loans. I bet we could get more loans if we do 3%. So the bank offers 3%. They get a bunch more loans. Then the guy takes the bundle of loans. He goes back to the Wall Street guys. He's like, guys, I got 3% loans. Who wants 3% loans? sold. They got them all sold. Sells them all, right? So the, the the price of the assets going up because the Wall Street guys keep buying them. As the price goes up because the Wall Street guys are buying them, it allows the bank to offer lower rates to consumers. If the guy brings the package of 3% loans to Wall Street, the Wall Street guys are like, no, 3% is lame. I don't want 3%. I can make 5% in the stock market right now. I can make 6% over here. I got other options and your 3% is not attractive to me. But then the guy's sitting there holding this giant basket full of loans and he needs to sell them. Like he, he was not under, like he was not planning on keeping these loans on his books. He's got to sell them. So it goes back to his buddies at the bank. He's like, yo, we got problems. I can't sell these 3% loans. We need to get some higher interest rate loans. Man, tell everyone else we're going to start charging 5 or 6%, right? So they go do some 5 or 6% loans. Then they mix those with the 3% loans. They get a new blended rate for that bundle of loans. And then they get Wall Street to buy them. Right. And so the appetite of the investors for help, like whether they're buying or not buying these mortgage backed securities or these loans, that has a direct correlation to the interest rate that's offered to the next borrower in line. So when you have the federal government coming in and basically saying, we'll buy all of the mortgage backed securities, man, all the loans you bring to us, we're just going to buy them all because the government wants to keep this thing afloat. Well, then shoot, the banks are incentivized and able then to go live, go give very, very low interest rate mortgages because they know the government is just going to buy them anyways. Right. Right. And so the government is started buying literally trillions with a T, trillions of dollars of these mortgage-backed securities. And they got to the point where they were the number one buyer of mortgage-backed securities and mortgage bonds anywhere. Like no one was buying as much as the federal government. And so interest rates got very, 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 very low. And there's been a couple times in the past decade or so where the federal government and the Federal Reserve is like, 
maybe we should unravel some of this. Like maybe, maybe, you know, maybe we should like stop this or slow it down. Well, anytime they try to stop it or slow it down, it starts to create ripples in the economy and ripples in the industry and starts making people mad. And uh, it's a harder thing to unravel than they had anticipated, right? And so the government has been heavily involved in this market for the past decade. And we all have gotten a little bit spoiled. Like we are lulled into a false sense of security um, because of what the what the, the government has been doing in this area, right? Um, right now, what's happening is that the government is kind of being forced to back off this, this stance of very accommodative monetary policy. And the reason that they're going to have to unwind this is because of inflation. And so when they were doing it back in 08, 09, a bunch of people got in, up in arms about it. They're like, hey, listen, if you start printing trillions of dollars, then eventually this printing of money will become inflationary. And inflation's bad for everybody, right? Well, We've been measuring inf inflation, obviously, for the last decade, and it hasn't happened. Like, they keep printing money, and inflation is not happening. It's, it's staying very, very low. Well, just earlier this year and end of last year, we started to see some inflation tick up. We knew it was bound to happen eventually, and here it is. And at first, the Federal Reserve came out and said, hey, don't worry about this inflation. Ain't nothing to see here. This is transitory. This is temporary, transitory inflation. It's going to go away. Don't get excited. Nothing to see here. Well, there's enough time and data in now that says it's not temporary. This is a real thing. We're going to have to live with this interest, right? Or this not this interest, but this inflation. And so the government is having to, or the Federal Reserve is having to back off some of those purchases of mortgage-backed securities. They're buying less of them, right? They're printing less money. And so what that does means there's less demand. If there's less demand... It means the rates have got to go up a little bit, right? Got it. Okay, that makes total sense then. So the money that they're printing, they're printing it in order to purchase the loans that are coming in at the lower interest rate. And yes. if they're starting to back off from that, then suddenly those interest rates are going to have to go up in order to entice the investors to purchase them again. Ding, ding, ding. So maybe like the actual investors, like the real people in the banks, they all say, hey, 5%. You give me a 5% note, I'll buy that. I'll buy all the 5%ers. But the government is still buying the ones at 2%. And as long as the government is buying all of the ones at 2%, then the guys that would only pay 5%, they're just not buying any. They're just like, they're not they're not there. And because the government is, is stepping in to buy all of them at 2%, it is giving us an artificial picture of the demand from the market, right? So as the government steps away, the only guy left at the table are like the real investors over here who want 5%, and then you see rates going up, right? There's another element that plays into the same scenario. So these mortgage-backed securities, again, if you buy one, like you know, anyone listening, can you can go buy one. Like You can participate in this market, and you're going to earn 3-ish percent on your money. You buy yourself a chunk of this mortgage-backed security, every month you're going to get drip, 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 3%, 3%, 3%. Well, if I tie up my money, and I'm earning 3% on it, and inflation is at zero, inflation's at zero, and I'm earning three, I'm getting a 3% rate of return. I'm excited about that. It's safe, it's conservative, but like my money's growing, um, it's going up, I'm good with that. Don't have to think about it, yeah. It's on cruise control, you know, it's just coming. So if I am committing my assets and I'm earning 3% on my money, but then inflation goes up and inflation becomes 4%, well, if I'm earning at three and inflation's at four, it means I'm actually losing money. 
my, my total portfolio is going down every year. And so inflation kills any long-term fixed rate investment. And so these, these bonds, owning someone's mortgage note is a fixed rate, 30-year fixed rate loan. So my income level is fixed. What's not fixed is inflation. So at, at when inflation's at zero, I'm excited about a 3% note. Like, I'm in for it. Sell me that. If inflation's at 4% and I still want to make that same 3% spread, I got to earn 7. I got to earn 7 to slip the 4 on inflation to keep my net profit. And so you have both of these things happen at once, where inflation is making these fixed rate assets less desirable as a whole, and the number one guy who's buying the assets wants to buy less assets, right? So the federal government wants to step out. So you've got, uh, it's a function of supply and demand, and you just have way less demand in a, in a very sudden kind of time period. And so rates are going up, rates are going up. Does that mean we're might see a return of the, um, oh, what was it? We've got the fixed rate and then we've got the adjustable rate. Adjustable mortgage. rate. I want to say fluctuating rate, but yeah. adjustable rate. That's the it. Adjustable rate mortgage <laughs> or ARMS. And ARMS were uh, very popular back in the early 2000s when interest rates were 7, 8, 9, 10%. Um, and when rates were 7, 8, 9, 10%, you could get an adjustable rate mortgage at 5%. Well, shoot, heck yeah, that was a deal. Like, I'll take that. Um, so in, in an environment where Rates are very low, which has been like the last 10 years or so. No one's doing ARMS. Like we haven't done an ARM in our office in over a decade for sure. Um, ARMS also, I would note, got a really bad name. They got a bad rap during the 08, 09 kind of crisis as a bunch of the loans that were going like were exploding and going belly up were adjustable rate mortgages because they adjusted and became unaffordable for people. And then they just they went into foreclosure. So ARMS got a bad rap. Arms are not bad. There's nothing inherently evil about them. It's just a tool that was potentially misused by some people, right? Some people used adjustable rate mortgages to buy something they couldn't otherwise afford, right? So an arm is skewing your cost towards the back half of the loan. I'm going to get a better deal now for a worse deal later is kind of the trade-off with an arm. And so some people, back when we were all drunk on real estate because it was appreciating at double digits every year, were like, all right, I want all my benefit now and I make a ton of profit because my buildings go up in value, I'm cash flowing, I can get this low, sexy teaser interest rate now, and then when it becomes expensive later, I'll refinance it or sell it or something like that. Well, then the market collapsed and people couldn't refinance and they couldn't sell it and the payment jumped up $500 and like, ah. And then you had this thing called strategic default where these people had put no money down on these properties because you could buy them zero down. Right. So if you got a zero down stated income loan, so you didn't really qualify for it. You just like wrote a number and the bank was okay with that back then. Stated income. <laughs> which is a whole nother, whole nother <laughs> conversation, right? Uh, but that was a thing. And then if your payment jumped up 500 bucks and you couldn't get out of it, it was like, all right, well, okay, I'm, I'm just out of here. Like this is no longer working for me. I'm, I'm, I'm gone, right? As rates go back up, adjustable rate mortgages will come back. Like you will see more of them. You're going to see flyers and, and things in the mail and you're going to see, you know, radio ads and internet banners and, and those companies that like to sell things will be looking to sell you an adjustable rate mortgage. Mark my words. I would caution anyone listening, anyone shopping for a home to avoid a salesman. You do not want to get sold something in this industry. 
And that's one of the things I like about the format that you're doing, Jamin, with your podcast and with your YouTube is you're coming from a place of adding value and of educating. You're like, hey, man, let me teach you something. I'm not trying to sell you anything here. Come alongside me. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you about Alaska. I'm going to teach you about real estate. I'm going to teach you about mortgage loans. Like, let me teach you something. And if you're listening, you should seek out a professional that will take the time to teach you things. And so when you see an online banner that pops up and they're like 1.9% adjustable rate mortgage apply now, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Be skeptical, be curious, uh, and you should find a local professional that you can um, that you can meet, get to know, look in their eyes and get an education from that. Because an adjustable rate mortgage might be good for you, but it might not. Right. And it's really hard to, um, to really find that out if you're just talking to the salesman. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If you ask the barber whether you need a haircut, answer is always yes. <laughs> I've been told that. I, I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so let me go and ask you this real quick. And I know this is like the million dollar question. Um, what do we see moving forward in 2022? That's a good question. Let me get out my, uh, my crystal ball over here real quick. <laughs> Um, if, if I could accurately predict the future, I would uh, be living on the beach someplace in a yacht and, and not in uh, Alaska doing loans, you know? <laughs> um, however, that being said, uh, in order to take our best guess as to what tomorrow holds, we got to look at the past. And so we look for patterns, right? Patterns tend to repeat themselves. History tends to repeat itself. So we look for patterns. Um, the expectation for 2022 is increasing interest rates. Are they going to skyrocket to 10%? No, 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 they're not, not going to do that. Are they going to slowly climb a little bit higher? Yeah, probably. Is now a good time to buy a house? Yeah, it is. Uh, interest rates have been like crazy, abnormally, unsustainably low for a very long time. All right. Um, ever since the government got involved, they've been whacking out the market. And so rates have been abnormally low for 10 years. The problem is after 10 years, it starts to be the new normal and everyone expects those low rates. Rates had bottomed out, like they're the lowest they were ever going to get. And then COVID happened. Then 2020 happened. And we had another like earth shattering financial event that affected everyone everywhere. What happened? The government stepped in. So the reason rates got low is because government stepped in. And then while the government was still got their fingers in the pie, they had to step in again. Guess what? Rates got even lower. No one saw that coming. And like nobody saw that coming. Um, if you would talk to anyone over the past 10 years that was paying attention to the market, they would have said, expect rates to go up, expect rates to go up. I've been saying expect rates to go up. They might say low, expect them to go up. And then all of a sudden COVID happened and rates like, they like barreled downwards again. And so rates are coming back to, I'm going to use the air quotes, normal level. They're not skyrocketing. They're not out of control. Um, they're coming back to a, a, a normal level. What's normal? Historically speaking, historically speaking, normal is like five to seven percent. Like that's kind of like a, an air quotes normal. If you go back and look at the last twenty years, last thirty years of of the mortgage industry in real estate, like five to seven percent is pretty normal. Um, I will never forget, like as a bunch of years ago, I can't remember even how many, but this is like a bunch of years ago. We were in the middle of a, a refinance boom as rates had dropped, and rates had come down to. 
5%. Like, rates had been way higher than that, and they came down to 5 and, like, the whole country was refinancing. And I had this little old grandma in my office, and we were getting her out of, like, an 8.5% loan, and we were getting a 5, 5.0%. And she literally got teary-eyed. She started crying in my office for all the money we were saving her. She, like, made me stand up and gave me a big old, like, bear hug, like a little bit too long, like a slightly uncomfortable lingering bear hug. <laughs> and she's like, Adam, she's crying. She's like, I never thought I'd see the day, you know, at my whatever age I am, grandma status. She's like, I never thought I'd see the day where I would get a 5% interest rate on my home loan. What you're doing for me here is going to change my life, changes my retirement, allows me to plan in a whole new way. And it stuck with me, right? And so now I talk to people and they're like, three and a half? I ain't paying no three and a half interest rate. That's outrageous. I ain't paying no three and a half. <laughs> and so fast we get accustomed, you know, to, to and lured into this false sense of security with the low rates. We get spoiled really, really fast. It doesn't take us very long at all. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. So rates right now are still, I mean, it depends on the program, depends on you, depends on the down payment, a bunch of other factors, but you can still get rates like in the 3%. There are some, you know, loans, if your credit's not maybe so hot, and otherwise maybe you're looking at like low fours, maybe even mid fours today. Um, I expect those to climb up a little bit more. I think we're probably looking at, you know, four to fives, you know, probably for the rest of this year. Um, an increase of a half a percent, you know, over the scheme of the 30 years is not, I mean, yes, it's expensive. We started the show in the front half talking about that, but it shouldn't dissuade you from, from moving. All right. Um, interest rates should not dissuade you from buying real estate. You are way better off under any measurement, um, by acting and buying real estate, um, as real estate is the number one greatest generator of wealth in the world. And it always has been. You've got the landowners and you got the serfs, right? The people that own the land and the people that work the land. Like going back, I mean, back to kings and queens and castles, right? That's the dynamic. And even today, one of the reasons that the government is, is, is involved and interested in keeping rates low, the reason why we have low down payment, government-sponsored, government-subsidized loans, is that it's good for the country, it's good for the economy, for people to own homes, because homes generate wealth. And the more wealth you generate for your country, the better the country is. We want to create wealth. And so to participate in the, the American dream of owning a home and generating wealth, do the dang thing, right? Even when interest rates were 10, 11, 12%, like back in the early 2000s, real estate was on fire and people were getting rich left and right. People making a bunch of money. So don't talk yourself out of an opportunity because you're only looking at the cost and you're not looking at the reward, right? We talked about investing is balancing risk with balancing reward. You have to look at both sides of the equation. And if you are hyper-focused only on what it's going to cost you and you don't look at what you would gain in the next 5, 10, 20 years of your life through owning your own home, owning an investment property, owning that second home, and making that decision, you're costing yourself. Oh, 100%. I mean, the way I try to explain it to people is you're going to be paying that that interest rate one way or the other, either as a renter and the landlord's going to pass it on to you or you can be the landlord yourself and be the man there. Yeah, but, you're right. You're paying for it one way or the other because it's not free to live, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with property taxes. I mean, I've talked with a number of people and you know, a number of sellers and they're like, well, we'll just barely break even. That's just not quite worth it to us. And I was like, okay, well, it, everyone's situation is going to be different, but... Crazy as that, if you could 
live somewhere essentially for free. Mm-hmm. Like if you just break even, mm-hmm. <laughs> you just live somewhere for free for like three, four, five years, however long you were there. It's a solid <laughs> win. Yeah, it's a solid win. And a lot of people neglect or forget to look at all of the other many benefits that real estate has to offer. You have to live someplace. You're going to be paying rent. You're, you're, you're paying, if you're not paying rent, you're not paying a mortgage. You're paying some other way. All right. Uh, even when you lived at home at your mama's house, if she didn't make you pay rent, you had to do chores, right? You had some responsibilities. So you're going to have to pay in one way or the other to have a roof over your head. And you're right in that there are the, the, those other benefits. You've got the, the equity appreciation or not equity appreciation, but um, equity growth, which comes from a couple of different functions. You've got debt pay down. So you're paying off your mortgage. The building's going up in value over time. Then you get tax savings as well. You can write off the interest on your taxes, et cetera. So there's a lot of other like tertiary benefits from owning real estate that people forget to look at when they're just comparing what is my monthly expense to my current rent expense. And if all you look at is mortgage payment versus rent, you're oversimplifying a complex equation and to your own detriment. No, that's, that's totally true. I mean, I guess the best analogy I could think would be like, if you're trying to decide if you want to take an airplane to get somewhere versus a car and then just looking at, oh, I'm going to have to wait for an hour to get onto the plane. Oh, no, we're just going to drive to California in the car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's faster. Yeah, yeah. And you could argue it's cheaper until you add up, okay, I got I got not just the gas, but I got snacks and food along the way because I'm going to be eating, like, junk food, and it's going to be expensive, you know, you know. And I'm also putting the mileage on my car, and so my car, I have to put new brakes on it every so often, tires on it every so often. I got this maintenance. I need oil change. You start adding up all of those those like layered costs, right? Those layered costs. And it's easy to rationalize away one or two of them. But if you are curious and you start tallying it all up, you might realize, okay, well, if I have to drive my car cross country and this is the mileage and the, all of the other things that come with it, maybe it's more expensive than just paying for that, that airplane ticket. Exactly. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and move on here. So what are some of the, some of the services and the products with uh, first rate financial that uh, you kind of mentioned before, there's might be some new stuff coming online here. So sure, sure. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Heck yeah. Uh, we are a mortgage brokerage, uh, a wholesale brokerage. So shopping at first rate is kind of like going to Costco as opposed to going to like Eddie Bauer direct, you know, or, or like the retailer direct. So as a wholesaler, we have more opportunities to work with different lenders, which can provide us different products at wholesale prices. So we, we tend to be cheaper. We can't always be cheaper than everybody, but we tend to be cheaper on average. And not only are we cheaper, we have a broader selection of products to serve people. Um, so we have a couple exciting new products that are back on the scene, um, which are a little bit reminiscent of some of the creative programs we saw back in the early 2000s, except they have a lot more responsibility attached to them these days. You know, So I'd alluded to these zero down stated income loans, adjustable rate loans that kind of got the industry in trouble You know, a bunch of years ago. We're starting to see some flexibility and creativity coming back, which is good, but now they require some specific things from you to make them safer, like a down payment, right? So the down payment is one of the number one functions of whether someone's going to pay the bills or not. If you have none of your own skin in the game, it's easy to give up on the investment, right? Because investment, again, is I'm looking at what did I put in and what do I get out? What's at risk? And so if I have nothing at risk, if I have none of my own money at risk, well, if the if the investment doesn't work out, I'm just out of it. I'm just like, I'm just dropping this thing. I'm gone. 
But if I had to put my own money into it, like if I got some real risk on the table, I'm more likely to stick with it and make it work. And so uh, a few different programs. Um, the first one is called a, uh, the Smart Edge. These, this series of loans is called the Smart Series of Products. So the first one's called the Smart Edge. And these are for people that would be on the edge of qualifying for a loan because of specifically credit-related issues. So someone's had a bankruptcy, a foreclosure, a short sale, um, a rash of late payments, you know, on the credit cards or something like that because of some sort of unfortunate circumstances that happened to you. Um, depending on the circumstances and any number of those things that I just mentioned, they could prohibit you from buying a, a new home from anywhere from three to seven years. So if you're in a situation where I had a, you know, foreclosure or a bankruptcy and it puts me in a situation where I can't buy for seven years, shoot, that's a long time. Maybe it only takes me three years before I'm fully financially recovered. I got my credit score up. I've got a new stable job. I got all my debts paid off. I got money in the bank. Three years down the road, like I'm back on track and cooking, but I don't meet the requirements until seven years later. That's rough. So the bank's saying, listen, if you have reestablished your credit history, if you got a 10% down payment, we will be willing to completely ignore that negative event. We will ignore your foreclosure, your bankruptcy, your short sale, your rash of late payments, your, your auto repossession. We will ignore that. We're not even going to penalize you for it. As long as you're back on track and you can write a letter that says, hey, this is a one-time event, you're in. You're good, right? And again, it requires that 10% down payment. So you got to have some skin in the game. You got to be committed. Uh, you got to be serious about this. But if you've kept your nose clean recently, you got that down payment, you're in. Um, if you had a, you know, if you just opened a new restaurant in 2019, opening a new restaurant in 2019, worst possible time to own or, or open a restaurant <laughs> in like, you know, my lifetime. You open in 2019, you grow in 2020 COVID and the whole thing just blows up. You had to file bankruptcy. Right. So you file bankruptcy in like August of 2020. It was a bad idea. Um, after that, you got yourself a new job. You've recovered some. It was just, you know, a year and a half ago. But you might now already be eligible for a new loan because of this new program. Right. Man, that's awesome. It is super cool. Yeah. So what are some of the things that really differentiate first rate from, from the competitors? Oh, I got more. I'm not done yet. I want to talk about okay. two, two more programs. Okay, let's and, keep going. And then we'll get into that. Okay, so that's one. Uh, these are in level of coolness to me, all right? So <laughs> the lowest hanging fruit is if you got a bankruptcy or foreclosure, we'll still get you a loan, okay? Um, the, the next one is for self-employed folks. And there's a lot of people listening that this will apply to. So if you are self-employed, turn up your radio a little bit. If you're self-employed, you know that you get to write things off on your taxes, right? You get to, uh, you have your gross income and then you get to whittle your gross income down by all of your expenses. You know, I've got my trucks, my tools, my insurance, my payroll, my goods and products I had to sell, et cetera. And you can play games a little bit with these because the IRS is relatively lenient in what they'll let you write off. So it's not uncommon that I'll talk to a business owner that is in the real world quite successful. Guy drives up in a brand new $80,000 truck. He's got a fancy outfit on. He's got a nice watch on. Like, dude's got some money in the bank account. Like, he's doing all right. He's doing all right. Like, got all the signals, financial signals, doing all right. You look at his tax returns, negative $30,000. You know, it shows that he lost money last year through his business. And if you're telling the IRS that you lost money, you can't go to the bank and tell them a different story. Right? You can't be like, hey, IRS, I'm too broke to pay taxes. Look at me. What was me, business owner? No taxes for me. Then go to the bank and be like, between you and me, I'm balling over here. Don't don't tell Uncle Sam, but I'm balling. <laughs> so you got to tell mom and dad the same story. Got to tell mom and dad the same story. <laughs> so the banks are recognizing, though, all right, like this is the way that it should be, and you should pay your taxes. You should be, you know, you should 
participate in the American system by paying your taxes. However, we recognize that there are some people that are taking advantage of the loopholes that the IRS allows you to do that might still be good lending risks. So they're saying, all right, self-employed business owner who writes everything off in your taxes, we see you. We'll come up with a product and a program just for you. So this program, they're not going to look at your tax returns. They're going to ignore your taxes. We don't want your taxes. I don't want your W-2. I don't want your K-1. I don't want your pay stubs. I don't want a profit loss. I don't want a balance sheet. I don't need any of that. All we're going to look at is your bank statements, your business bank statements, and we're going to tally up all of the deposits into the bank statements. We'll whack them by half because we know you're going to have some costs there, and then that's the number that you can use for qualifying. Oh, nice. Which is that's huge, huge yeah. and pretty liberal. Lots of self-employed people get turned down for loans because of the, the strategy that they use and they follow their taxes. And so now those, those strategies legal as they may be, will not be held against you in this process. So like two thumbs up, this is exciting. Man, that's awesome. Because yeah, I mean, that's something I'm looking at doing like right now is figuring out how to do taxes for the next year. So it's not necessarily, I mean, obviously still pay taxes and all that, but it's not going to be quite the same way that it was before. It's more about the total amount that's in the bank account. Yes. So run a good business, be able to show that it's there and Yes. Covers over a host of sins. Okay. And if you, uh, I know that you've been through the process recently and anyone who's been self-employed and gone through this process recently, it is like extensive and they're going to climb all up into your (laughs) life. Barely, barely got across the finish line on that one. (laughs) It can be difficult. And so this is a way that gives a lot more safety and surety to a business owner, you know? Man, that's awesome. Super cool. Last one that I. uh, And that's, that's coming up this year. Right now, like today, right now, today, this day. Okay. today, you can do it. It's available right now. Minimum 10% down payment. That, that 10% down again, you got to have some money in the bank. Um, you have to prove your ability to save, and you have to have decent credit. Not amazing credit, like a 660, 680, we can work with that, but you're not rolling in with a low 6 or 500 credit score for a program like this. Right. Gotcha. That makes sense. The last one that I'm super excited about, uh, as a real estate investor, again, like I, I own and uh, you know buy properties and flip properties and long-term rentals. I, I love real estate as an investment tool. This one's for investors. Um, successful investors oftentimes get to the point where they can quit their regular job, air quotes, right? You can be an investor. You can live off your investments. Um, and so this new program, it uses a DSCR or debt service coverage ratio. The debt service coverage ratio measures the level of income versus the, the, the payment or the mortgage expense on that building. And this is um, a metric or a tool that commercial lenders have used for many, many years when lending on like a, an eight plex or 10 plex. What does the building cost per month? And does the income service that debt fully? And is there some overage there? So this program is not going to look at your income at all. doesn't measure you as a borrower. It looks at the property. And so it's for non-owner occupied properties only. So you can't live there. It's only for investment properties. You have to have 20% down for single family or condo, 25% down for a two to four unit property, that is not any higher than traditional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac programs. So down payments are the same as all of your regular boring loans. But you come up with that that down payment, they only expect the rental income from the property, which we can use 100% of gross rents, has to be just equal to or greater than the mortgage payment, and you're in. So it requires a debt service coverage ratio of 1.0. Fast math. If you have a fourplex, where your rent is $1,000 per unit, your total gross income, $4,000 per month. As long as the mortgage payment, the PITI again, principal interest taxes insurance, is less than $4,000, 
approved. You're in, approved. $4,000 in income, the mortgage payment's $3,900, you're in. As long as you got the down payment, got decent credit, you're in. I don't want to look at your pay stubs, don't care about your W-2s. I don't care if you have five other investment properties that you're writing off big expenses for. And a lot of these, these you know, serious investors, they have five other properties that are all showing big losses on their taxes again, right on their taxes, because the IRS allows you to depreciate the property and write off all this list of other things. And so in a situation where someone might not qualify for a, a normal air quotes loan because of the game they're playing with their taxes and they don't have traditional income, this is a way that an investor continue to, can continue to grow. Man, that's a, that's a game changer. This one wow. is huge. This one, like if you've ever wanted to get into real estate investing, like this is a, this is a big one. This one is, this is my personal favorite. That's the one I'm most excited about is this one. Yeah. Cause I mean that, uh, that rental income was something we just could not, it was great to have, but you couldn't really do much with it other than just have the cash flow yeah. each month. But man, yeah. that's huge. And I have been, you know, I've, I was born and raised in Anchorage, been living and investing in this town for a long time. I'm relatively familiar with the, the, the buildings and the rents that you're going to get. I don't think there's any multifamily property that you're going to find in our community that won't qualify for this program. Okay. I'm pretty sure that any two to four unit property you find is going to qualify. You might be able to find a single family or a condo that wouldn't meet the criteria just because the rental income is relatively low in comparison to the cost of the thing. But once you add a second door, once you got some multiple doors, then you're making more than enough money to qualify for this program. So really decent credit and a down payment is all you need to start your investing game or to move to that next level. Gotcha. Man, that's huge. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's why you talk with the local, uh, local mortgage yep. lender. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So um, I guess real quick, then just a couple more questions. Um, so what really is kind of the big differentiating, differentiating difference between first rate and kind of the other lenders out there? Or, yeah. or maybe maybe a better question, what do you love most about first rate? Maybe that's a better question. Sure. Uh, I got a bunch of answers. Um, <laughs> so let's see, real quick, what makes us different first? Uh, we are a mortgage broker again. So we're not lending our money. We're not like a bank that's pushing products that we create. We're not selling you something. We kind of play matchmaker, if you will. And so our job is to meet the client, have a discussion about um, – goals and planning, help educate you. And then we are going to go advocate for you in the mortgage lending environment, like on a national level. So we're going to help pretty you up. We're going to get you in a pretty dress. We're going to scrub you, make you look clean, bow in your hair, put some perfume on you, make you look pretty and attractive. And then I'm going to go get a bunch of other banks that will compete to give you a loan, right? And when the banks compete, you win right? And we represent you. I don't work for the banks. We work for you, the client. And so we're going to take the time to teach and educate you to help you get the best deal, right? Um, we are local right here in Alaska. Like we are in Alaska only. That's what we do. We have a nonprofit organization where we, every time we fund a loan, we're giving back to the community. Um, last year, we invested and gave back to the community over $120,000, uh, that, that we've reinvested. And that's one of the things I'm proudest of over the last couple of years is getting our foundation up and running. And the amount of good we've been able to do is, is just, is humbling is what it is. 
So um, we're local. We invest in the community. We care about people. We are a broker, so we can shop around to make sure that you're getting the best deal. We have these cool and creative products like we talked about, so we have more products. We get to say yes more often than like a regular retail bank. Outstanding. So just boiling it down real quick then, uh, what for buyers would be your 10-second takeaway from, from the discussion from today? Uh, my 10-second takeaway, uh, I could even get it shorter than 10 seconds. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boil it down to don't get sold, get educated. Don't get sold, get educated. Buying a home is a big deal, okay? Uh, buying a home is a big deal. Do not do it in a rush, all right? Mortgages, on average, in America last longer than marriages do. And they're also harder to get out of than marriages, all right? Uh, so if you wouldn't marry someone after seeing an online profile picture and going on one date with them, don't, don't, don't treat real estate that same way, all right? This should be taken with some time, some care, and some planning. I'd like to think that if you're listening to this podcast and you got all the way to the end, you're the kind of person who plans and likes to learn, right? If you're following Jamin and you're, you're consuming his content, then you are you're engaged, you're learning, you're curious. And I would encourage that. I think that that behavior of being engaged and curious and asking questions is key and fundamental to your success. The last thing is, is a call to action. Don't wait to the last minute. Give Jamin more time. Give us more time to partner with you, um, to talk to you and help you set and accomplish specific goals. Absolutely. So I guess for sellers, moving forward then. I don't know if you have any 10 second takeaway for, for sellers as well, but. Uh, for sellers, the thing I would say um, primarily is that generally when you're selling a home, you're going to buy another one on the other side. You know, it's, it's kind of like the handoff. Um, what you should do is again, planning. That's all circles back again to, to planning. Do not list your home for sale until you've been pre-approved to buy a new home. Uh, the market is hungry for inventory right now. Like we need homes to sell. If you list your home, it will sell. Jamin's going to have you offers like within the first week, you know, as long as you priced it right, uh, it's going to go fast. Don't be in a situation where you're now in contract to sell your home and you haven't fully fleshed out your finances to buy your next one yet. That could be a problem. Yeah, that's that's got to be the worst feeling in the world. All right. Well, Adam, this has been great. Um, I, I definitely learned a lot here. I'm definitely going to be making some calls as soon as we're done here. So <laughs> thank you very much. Um, where's going to be the, the best place for people to, to learn more about First Rate and for them to reach out? Sure. You can find us online at firstrateak.com. And uh, first is spelled out. So F-I-R-S-T, firstrateak.com. Uh, you can find uh, um, you know find us there and learn a little bit more about our team. You can reach us um, uh, here in Anchorage, our, our home office at 907-222-5500. And that's 907-222-5500. We do have physical offices in Anchorage, Wasilla, and in Fairbanks as well. We lend all across Alaska. Um, all across Alaska, we do both purchase and refinances. Um, most people have refinanced already. If you haven't refinanced yet, give us a call. Let's look at it because those rates are going up. Let's like take one last look at it before you miss that opportunity. Exactly. All right. And we'll have all that information in the, in the show notes as well. So um, Adam, again, thank you very much. And um, thanks for listening. And we'll see you all next time.